The reading today is from Acts chapter 5, 12 through 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not only by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we were witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the, in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this is the plan, or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is God, you will not be you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Good morning, guys. Thank you, Shelley, for reading. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to open to the passage our friend Shelley just read, Acts chapter 5. This morning we're looking at verses 12 through 42. One of the most important elements in understanding the Bible, or any piece of literature for that matter, is understanding context. Those who study biblical interpretation, those who study the process of exegesis, that is taking meaning out of the text, will tell you that context is king. If you don't know the context, you take a verse out of context, you can almost make something that it was never intended to say, say what you want it to say, what you'd hope it to stay. And understanding the genre of different literatures in the Bible is really important for, for understanding what does the scriptures teach? What is the intended way of, of the grain that we are to read along with the Bible? In many ways, we do this instinctively. Right? We're not going to watch King 5 News and expect to be laughing in our couches based on the, the satire and the amazingly written jokes. Maybe some of us watch the news laughing for other reasons, but we're not going to approach the news like we would approach stand-up comedy. As we, we open up Netflix and we, we click on a documentary, we're not going to expect a documentary, or Michelle Obama's latest documentary, Becoming. We're not going to expect that kind of documentary to have the same kind of effect if we were to open a stand-up comedy routine from Jim Gaffigan or Kevin Hart or a funny person, right? <laughs> Genre and context are really important in understanding. If you, if you don't keep the context in mind, you can take a verse like Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And you can interpret that as, or if you wanted to, you could take it as, man, my hand just happened to grab this Xbox controller, and I'm just going to do this with all my might. I'm going to do this for as long as I can. God's called me to play video games and do it with all my might. Right? We might take a verse like Philippians 4.13, probably one of the most out-of-context verses that people take. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we could inaccurately conclude that that means I could do a 360 windmill dunk. I could throw a baseball 100 miles an hour. Or I could not, you know, I could not mess up my words as I read. That's what I would like to do. I could just cure dyslexia somehow. Or maybe be able to dance. I wish I could dance, man. Yeah. Thomas knows. As we study the Bible, it's important to keep in mind what was the author's intent and what was the context of, of each passage that we're 
looking at is, and as we study Acts, as we've been studying Acts since the beginning of the new year, I think it's important to remember, why did Luke write Acts? What's the, what's the focus, the intent of, of where this story is going? And Acts is the second part of a two-part story written by a guy named Luke. The first of his works is called The Gospel According to Luke. And the second part is a book called Acts. And this is how, this is how Luke opened the first act. That's kind of confusing. I should probably use a different word. The first part of the two-part story of Luke. This is what he writes. Luke 1. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have, may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is writing this account so that Theophilus, his friend, the person he's writing to, and in turn us, right, we may have certainty on the gospel. Luke has written this detailed, orderly account, and I think he's written this in such a way to strengthen our faith. Amen? Amen. He tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry in the book of Luke, the story of his life, death, and his resurrection. And then in the story of Acts, he tells the story of Jesus' ascension, his sending of the Spirit onto the church, and the kind of explosion, the expansion of the gospel in this new Jesus movement among the nations. And this is how he starts the second work, Acts 1.1. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So I'm recalling Acts, the the works of Jesus and the Spirit. Because we think Acts is a continuation of what Jesus was doing in Luke through his people in Acts. So the church has been gifted the and been given the privilege and the honor and the responsibility of continuing the ministry of Jesus to the world and spreading from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's, the, that's where we're going with Acts. And similar to how Jesus was arrested and questioned, the apostles, Luke writes here, Peter and John, they're arrested and questioned. We saw that story earlier in Acts. In this story, we see how the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, how they're enraged They want to kill the apostles, just like they were enraged and wanted to kill Jesus. It's like a pattern that's following here. The apostles didn't just suffer as kind of stoic, dutiful servants either. Jesus promised opposition, not not just like, so he told me it's going to happen, so I just got to endure it and grip my teeth and get through this. What's been blowing me away this week as I've been studying this passage is verse 41. I can't get over this verse. I don't really know what it means, if I'm going to be honest. I've tried to give myself to studying it and understanding it, and it, it, it's like, it seems like it's the word of God. It's so unlike me, you know, so holy. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's amazing. Christian tradition tells us that, that all the apostles, most of the apostles, many of the apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, last the Apostle Paul, they were all martyred for their faith. The only one of the apostles that you generally thought of to have died a natural cause of death is John. They all died. They were all martyred. And it wasn't just the apostles that faced and experienced this kind of boldness or they they described the suffering for Jesus as rejoicing, or they're like grateful, they were celebrating that they were kind of worthy to suffer with Jesus. This continued in the early life of the church. 
there was an early church father, the, a group of guys that lived right after the apostles. Anyone ever heard of a guy named Polycarp? He's one of the, kind of, kind of considered one of the three of the apostolic fathers, the early church fathers. He's said to be a, a disciple of John the apostle. He was born around 80, 70, and he was called an atheist by the Romans because he didn't believe in the polytheistic perspective and worldview that they had, their belief system. And there's an account of uh, the, martyrdom of, the martyrdom of Polycarp, which was composed by the Church of Smyrna. It's likely the earliest known work we have of the account of a martyr. And the story goes like this. So that there's a proconsul, Rome asked, asked whether he was Polycarp, and he said, yes, I'm Polycarp. And this is what he said. He tried to persuade him. He said, apostatize. Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Swear. Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. That's what he's saying. Deny Christ, and you can go free. I won't persecute you. This is what Polycarp says. 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul says, well, I have wild animals here, and I will throw you to them if you do not repent. And Polycarp says, call them. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. The proconsul said, well, if you, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. And Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire, for which burns an hour and then is extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. That's what Polycarp says. And this is what he prays. He's ready to be offered as a burnt offering to God. And he prays this. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both by of body and soul, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit, May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. You see what Polycarp said? I give thanks to you that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs. What in the world? How could someone say that? How could Polycarp get thanks to be counted worthy to suffer with Christ? How could the apostles rejoice that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name? Maybe it's, it's just, I'm, I'm not in a culture and context society where, you know, someone could come into this building and take me away and kill me because I'm opening the Bible and talking about Jesus. Or we don't live in that kind of Sight and culture. It just seems so foreign and distant to me. How, how, could you, how could you rejoice when you suffer for Jesus? So I'd like to explore that this morning. You guys with me? I think Luke retells and records the story because he wants to show the faith of the apostles. Right? They're remembering the promises of Jesus. They're so devoted to Jesus, and suffering for him is actually a cause for their rejoicing. And I think Luke wants to form in us this kind of virtue, this kind of faith, this kind of dependence and trust. I think Luke also wants to show that this movement of Jesus is not going to be stopped. Like, these guys are unstoppable. It's like, hey, stop talking about Jesus. Uh, we can't, actually. We can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. Hey, I'm going to threaten you. Oh, we're going to obey God rather than men. I'm going to beat you. 
well, I'm going to rejoice that I'm suffering for Jesus. It's like, what do we do these guys? Well, I'm going to kill them. That just might advance. We might be opposing God, Gamaliel says. But I think Luke wants to show us how glorious and beautiful and powerful this Jesus is, that his followers would consider themselves worthy to suffer with him. So our story in Acts this morning contains the first mention of the opponents of the gospel wanting to kill the apostles. We'll see just, just a few chapters from now, a man named Stephen, stoned to death in the following chapters. But there's a sentence that starts, and you see how the, the conflict that builds, the, the rising tension, the confusion, the questioning, the preaching, the enraging, the beating, and the dismissing. Let's consider that story. What, what leads them to experience this suffering? What do they say in the midst of it? In verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So God is continuing to work through the church. He's doing miraculous signs and wonders. We see his power and his presence upon the apostles, and God is continuing to answer the prayers of his people as they had prayed in Acts 4, 29-30. So what the, this is what the apostles prayed to God. God, look upon your threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name of the holy servant, Jesus. Right? So the miracles are not the end. The end is the, procl- the proclaiming of the gospel, the people responding in repentance and faith. The miracles are like the proof, the attestation, the confirmation. They're alongside. And, and verse 13 says, none of the rest dared join them but the people held them in high esteem. There's two different ways you can understand this. None of them dared join them, meaning the them is those in the community, those who were not really genuine believers. They, they didn't dare join the church if they weren't really genuine and committed. That's one way that, that you can read this. Another way is to say that no one who wasn't an apostle dared to join the apostles. They were like, yeah, the apostles. <laughs> I'm not the apostles. And uh, as, as you look at at verse 14, it, it seems a little strange to me if it would be uh, the fact that, that none of the rest dared join them when the people held them in high esteem, that there's talking about uh, non-Christians that did not want to attach themselves to the church. It seems more likely to me that it's better to understand Luke is saying, none of the believers dared join the apostles, but they held them in high esteem. That's how I understand it. And I think Luke is highlighting the unique authority and the power of the apostles, because just in verse 14, he says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. And so it could be that the non, non-committed people dared not join, but, but in light of the fact that Luke records just the verse after, that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, it seems more like I would understand as Luke is talking about no, no one of these apostles dared kind of presume to have the same kind of authority and power and miracles being done by their hands like the apostles did. That's just the interpretation I'm making in light of the text. You guys following me? And I understand that because I think the office of the apostle is, and the works that these, these great miracles are doing was through the apostles. It seems like that's what's happening here. It's not necessarily through the whole church body, but it's by the hands of the apostles. And we'll see throughout the story of Acts, as, as James the apostle is killed, there's no record of another person being added to the office of apostle. The final apostle, the last apostle, is described himself as the least of the apostles, the apostle John, it says, the last who appeared to me, it's like no one of these men Jesus appeared to and personally walked and they didn't kind of continue to have, we need to have 12 apostles continue established in the life of our church. So that's led me to have the conviction. I don't think the office of apostle is 
is for us today. I don't think there can be any more apostles. If someone just says, I'm an apostle, and now I have more authority. I don't see the scriptures that way. There's those who do. I don't think the office of apostle is no longer an office in the church. I think with the writing and the formalizing of the New Testament, there's not kind of any apostolic authority or greater authority other than the scriptures, and I think this can lead to all kinds of misleading theology and beliefs and practices in the church when those who claim to have a superior knowledge, there's even those who claim to be super apostles this day, they, their words are on the same level of scripture. So I would disagree with, with our Catholic brothers and sisters about the, the papal supremacy, that there can be the words of a person are equal worth and weight of the Bible. I also disagree with those in what's called the new apostolic movement that a person's word can sometimes even supersede what the scriptures teach. The final authority in the church is not flawed people. Amen? Amen. It's the Bible that has been graciously preserved through us throughout church history that is the inspired, inerrant word of God. That's what we want to root our church on. So all pastors and church leaders are under the authority of the scriptures. I say something that, that you don't think is right, judge it by what the scriptures teach. Amen? I am not inerrant. The inerrant thing that we come under as pastors are under shepherds, under Jesus and his word. Okay. Because when we see throughout Luke, he describes the advance of what's happening here. He doesn't mention miracles. He actually mentions as the word is increasing. So like these miracles are to supporting, encouraging, promoting the gospel, the word. We get that mixed up as miracles are the, really the main thing and the gospel is, you know, yeah, the gospel, but really it's about the miracles. We've, we've, we've mixed up what the early church did. Luke records Acts 6-7, the word of God continued to increase. Acts 12-24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19-20, so the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. So I think these descriptions of signs and wonders and healings are a confirmation of the unique apostolic authority that these men had, a unique role to record and write to the people of God the words of God, like the prophets of old did. They had this unique authority and role in redemptive history in special ways from the Holy Spirit. And we don't read a passage and a summary of these great signs and miracles in our church to think that if you don't walk by someone and your shadow kind of catching them heals their knee pain, right? or they've got some acne and you just walk by them and your shadow touches their face, and now they're healed. You guys remember playing that game where you'd like go and try to step on someone's face of their shadow? <laughs> I mean, just me. No? Okay. That doesn't mean if this doesn't happen, you haven't seen mighty miracles and works being done in, in your life by your hands, that you are somehow less of a Christian than the apostles. That God somehow doesn't love you as like different levels of love. Yeah, we have apostles, we have pastors, and then we just have church members, and then it's like, then those other people, those like other Christians, you know, they're like not as committed. And No, it's not how we should read the story of Acts here. You're not JV, you're not subpar, you're not second class. The apostles had a unique role in the redemptive history of the people of God. The people around the Jerusalem are gathering to them. And it's making the, the, the religious leaders jealous. They're getting angry at this. Right? There's like a buzz going on in Jerusalem. People coming and gathering and they're getting healed, people with unclean spirits. 
And the tension is building and it leads to this conflict. The high priests rise up, all who are with him. They're filled with jealousy and they arrest the apostles and they put them in prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord comes and opens the prison doors and brings them out. And look what the angel of the Lord says in verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. All the words of this life would be all the words of the gospel. It seems like even in the early, in the early church, there, there might have been, they were called the way. They could have been called the life. So talk about Jesus. Talk about the gospel. So go back to the temple where just earlier Peter and James were arrested. They go back to that temple and start teaching the people of God. And they start teaching at daybreak. So it's like when the high priest comes and they reconvene a meeting and they say, okay, guys, let's bring these apostles up from prison. Can you... Guards, go get them. Guard goes down and he says, they're not there. Like the door is locked, but they're not in it. And they go out and look and they say, look, the guys that we arrested, they're, they're in the temple preaching and teaching. Do you imagine how frustrating it's like, how do we stop these guys? You can't. Goodness. The officers go to the apostles, get to the prison. They don't find them. They say, verse 23, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Captain of the temple, they're perplexed by this. They're baffled. They're discombobulated. They're bamboozled. Wondering what would come of this? What does this mean? And someone says, look, the, the men that you put in jail are standing at the temple. They're preaching. They're teaching. And the captain and the officers, they call them. They bring them in, not by force. You can imagine they're going to be kind of gentle. Hey, guys, I don't want to take you. I'm not going to force you, but would you come with me? So they're afraid. We do something to harm these people, the, the crowds are going to stone us. They're going to kill us. And they bring them in, they stand before the Sanhedrin, and this is what the high priest asked them. He says, verse 28, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit's powerfully at work. They can't deny that. Miracles are happening. People are being healed. Those who are being tormented by unclean spirits are finding deliverance. They're being healed. These miracles and signs are proof that the Holy Spirit is at work among them. We're witnesses of these things. We have the Holy Spirit. The miracles are the proof. The boldness of the preaching is the proof. Their eyewitness accounts to this resurrected and ascended Jesus. We're witnesses of this. And when they hear this, look at verse 33. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. Like, you know you lost the argument when you want to kill the other person. You know you lost the argument when you're so angry you just want to silence them or walk away. And one Pharisee in the council, one that the, the leaders respected, this guy named Gamaliel, he stood up and he gave orders to put the apostles outside for a while. Pharisee is trying to maybe be the peacemaker. So these guys are getting angry, about to kill these apostles. He goes, hold on, guys. Why don't we... Put them outside. Let me talk for a second. Men of Israel, take care about what you're about to do, he says. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. 
And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. Like, we haven't, this is not the first time this has happened. Some guy says that he's something, he attracts a following, and then he dies, and then it kind of just fizzled away. And after him was Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Two examples here. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this is the undertaking of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, notice this. I don't understand quite why they do this. Or just, maybe they're just still so angry. They wanted to enact some sort of punishment. Like, yeah, we might be opposing God, but we're still going to beat his servants, right? I don't get it. When they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So did they take Amelia's advice? Did they kind of listen? Kind of. Okay, the, the apostles, are probably the traditional way of beating someone here was we. Uh, the maximum amount of beatings you could take was 39. It would be two on the back and one on the chest. They'd alternate in these, this pattern. And they thought 39, if you go any, anything over 39, you're probably going to kill them. So we don't say it was the maximum amount here. It just says they were beat. Depends on how angry they were, I guess, how many, how many strikes they gave them. But yeah, the verse 41. That's how the, the apostles respond out of this. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is, excuse me, that the Christ is Jesus. There's no way saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, how do you stop these guys? You can't. Threaten them, beat them. You imprison them. Angel of the Lord is going to come and unlock the door. Persecution does not stop the teaching, the spread, the proclamation. They continued. That says they did not cease. They continued teaching and proclaiming the good news. The the apostles might have been rejoicing because they were remembering the words of Jesus when he promised them. Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John Stott says like this, The condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted, is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart are merciful. Every Christian is to be a peacemaker, and every Christian is to expect opposition. Those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. Oh, the way that was said. And while other passages, they might have this passage in mind, other passages that bring clarity to the Christian understanding of suffering, they'll say things like, you know, suffering produces endurance, and that produces character, and that produces hope. They'll say things like, suffering tests the genuineness of our faith. It purifies our faith. They'll talk about suffering humbles us and makes us more dependent upon God and upon others. Jesus is promising here, you know, rejoice because your reward will be great in heaven. But, but Luke tells us why they rejoiced which is really what was baffling me so much this week. They celebrated that they were considered worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of Jesus. Notice, it's not they're rejoicing because they had their backs beaten. It's like, I'm bleeding, man. Yeah. Woo, I love pain. No pain, no gain, right? 
you know, those kind of gymisms, those gym wisdoms. Right? Yeah, I remember that in high school. Right? Pain, it's weakness, leaving the body. It's like, you gotta love the pain, embrace the pain. Now, I'm not saying this, yay, I got slapped. Woo, I love being disgraced. Feels so good. Sometimes I just do really embarrassing things because I love to be humiliated. Notice that they rejoice in because they suffered for the sake of Jesus. Now, they're not saying here, yeah, I suffered because I really made some poor choices. Man, I had six donuts too many. I'm rejoicing that I'm suffering. Well, that's just suffering for the wrong reason, right? You just, you had too many donuts, man. Easy on the donuts. Or I stayed up late. I'm exhausted. I'm just suffering for Jesus. Well, no, you just made a poor choice. You just stayed up too late, and now you're exhausted in the morning. And you're a little bit snippy and kind of grumpy. No one really likes you much right now. You, you just need to get some good sleep. All right, why is it that we don't see protagonists, right, the heroes in our movies, rejoicing and celebrating after they've been tortured? Right, the hero, like I think of James Bond, right, Casino Royale, he's punished and tortured. And it's like an act of like heroism. He doesn't give up the information of the, the Swiss bank codes. Maybe more familiar in the movie Shrek, when Lord Farquaad is torturing the gingerbread man. He's broken off his legs, and he's wondering, where are the other fairy tale characters? And the gingerbread man's not going to tell him, but he threatens, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull off your gumdrop buttons. Right? He says, no, no. Right? You guys know the story. <laughs> <laughs> Do the whole movie. Another time, Chris. <laughs> they don't show the good old gingerbread man rejoicing that he could suffer for his fairy tale friends. Why? Because I think intrinsically, this movie author, the writers, the, our storytellers, they know that the gingerbread man's friends aren't worthy of rejoicing. I don't think we see this in the stories over time because there's no reference. It's a total foreign thought that someone would be worthy enough to suffer for and actually be rejoicing that you could join him in that same kind of suffering. Dinger doesn't rejoice in Shrek because his friends aren't worthy of suffering. James Bond doesn't rejoice after he's tortured and doesn't give up the information but there is someone who's worthy. There is someone who suffered that if we suffer with him, if he counts us worthy enough to suffer with him, that is such a, a privilege and a honor and a joy that we can rejoice in it. That is how awesome Jesus is. Like it, it's like a foreign thought in movies. Like, that doesn't even make sense to me. That's how wonderful Jesus is. That's how I'm understanding it, at least. It's the best I can understand it. Here's the humbling truth, I think, from our story today. We don't deserve the honor of suffering for the name of Jesus. That is an honor that he gives us. The honor, the reality to rejoice in, is the suffering on behalf of Jesus or for Jesus or because of Jesus. It is a happy thing to share in the suffering of Jesus, to be considered worthy to be like him in his suffering. We suffer for the name because the name is that wonderful. The apostles were treated, were being treated like Jesus was. I think that's why they're rejoicing. They're rejoicing that they took similar experiences of persecution. They were imprisoned. 
They were silenced. They were mocked. They were beaten. They, they took the similar approach to that of their master. Or their opponents, in other words, had a similar approach to their master as they did to them. And they're counting that a worthy thing. This is the promise of the gospel. This is what, it's, as, as American Christians, it's not as popular to talk about as much in places that it's more persecuted. But Paul says, through many trials and sufferings, you must inherit the kingdom of God. It's like, we think about suffering as like, oh, if I, if I have to, I'll endure it. And the, the Bible teaches suffering is how you actually experience greater joy in life. You go through it. You don't go around it. The way of life is through the cross. The way of life is death. The way of glorification is humiliation. This is, the, this is the economy, the dynamics of the gospel. There's a Seattle-based band called King's Kaleidoscope that captured this kind of upside-down nature of, of the kingdom in the song, Light After Darkness. The lyrics read this. Light after darkness, gain after loss, strength after weakness, crown after cross, sweet after bitter, hope after fears, home after wandering, praise after tears, seeds after sowing, sun after rain, Sight after mystery, peace after pain, joy after sorrow, calm after blast, rest after weariness, sweet rest at last. The chorus goes, give me the hope for tomorrow. Give me the strength for today. You are the promise of peace on my pathway to faith. Near after distant, gleam after gloom, love after loneliness, life after tomb. These apostles knew Jesus. They knew it's an honor and a blessing and a privilege that Jesus would count them worthy enough to reflect his suffering, his humiliation. That confronts my faith. Does that confront you this morning? Brothers and sisters, I pray this story may strengthen our faith that no human plan, no persecution, no opposition will stop the movement of Jesus or the movement of his spirit. Yes, the, the fact the apostles joined in and they said they're not counted worthy to be treated or shamefully on behalf of the name, that inspires us. That's to cultivate as a virtue-forming effect in us, in courage and boldness and dependence upon Christ, rejoicing in our lives. So after they're rejoicing, it shows the worthiness, the wonder, and the beauty of Jesus. And that's how I'd like to end the sermon this morning. Not necessarily with... Look how the apostles suffered. Why are you complaining about a headache? You know, there, there probably could be a point for that though, right? But I don't want to digress. That's another sermon maybe. Gosh, Daniel. What does this story inspire and show us? And just how awesome Jesus is. The apostles rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer for Jesus because they knew, they appreciated, they were able to reflect on how Jesus had been shamefully treated for them. It was so fresh on their minds. Jesus became a curse. They saw it. Jesus was hung on a tree. Jesus was spat on and beaten and mocked. And instead of retaliating, instead of hurling insults back as insults were hurled at him, he entrusted himself to the Father. He didn't revile in return. 
He bore our sins in his body on the tree that by his wounds, we might be healed. This is how he embraced suffering. We are healed by his wounds. We were lost and astray. And this is how Jesus came for us as the suffering servant. Suffering for doing good is a gracious thing in the sight of God because it shows the graciousness of God in the glory of of the gospel, amen? It reflects the gracious suffering of the Son of God. We have been called to this church. This life of suffering for Jesus. He suffered for us. The apostle Peter writes that we might follow in his footsteps. We don't experience joy and life as we avoid suffering, but as we go through the cross, we die to ourselves. We suffer with him. His commands are not burdensome, burdensome. We hear even the words that suffering we can rejoice because we're considered worthy to suffer for Jesus. That really confronts our faith, doesn't it? Just think about that. That doesn't, that doesn't work. Suffering does not equal rejoicing. Suffering leads to complaining. Suffering leads to isolating. Suffering leads to medicating. Suffering leads to, God, why? Right? Closed fist, how could you do this to me? Suffering leads to accusing God. You're not good. You allow all this suffering. You're not good. He's invited us to this life of suffering and imitating our Lord Jesus and showed us that pain and suffering, but there's life and joy after. Many of us will suffer because of natural consequences of our poor choices, right? We might suffer bodily pain because poor diet choices or not enough sleep. We might suffer emotionally or relational pain because we're mean. We don't pursue others or we're not intentional in relationships. We might suffer bodily pain simply because we live in the world that is not how it was intended to be. Our bodies are not functioning in the perfect ways that they were intended. Some sort of connection is not quite right as I try to read something and it goes up to my brain and it try to comes back up in my mouth. But we will, if we are followers of Jesus, we will, the scriptures teach, we will suffer persecution. The Apostle Paul wrote to his friend, his son in the faith, Timothy, and said this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Not a little asterisk there. Oh, I didn't mean all, I meant some. I didn't mean all, I meant just really the ones that are like kind of weird and radical. Whatever we experience in this life in regards to hardship, we face with him, for him, reflecting him. And we too can rejoice that we are considered worthy of following him in persecution and peace, both in helpful or hostile environments. In cultures that, we, that intend to kill and imprison Christians or in cultures where the environment is kind of just indifferent. We can share in the sufferings of Jesus, getting to know him more intimately and deeply and reflecting his life in suffering. You see, when someone rejoices that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus, that is a witness that is really like bulletproof. That doesn't happen. What does that show? There's more than this body. There's more than this world. There's more than your approval of me. 
There's more of, of life than just 40 years in a prison. There's, there's more, there's a, a greater freedom than just being imprisoned. And that is the freedom of knowing and following Jesus. Do we believe that? It confronts us, doesn't it? In light of this story, church, I pray that we would see the wonder and the beauty as it just baffles us. It baffles me. Maybe you guys can help me understand more what this means. That we might rejoice, that we would suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. We wouldn't shy away from it, but we would consider it an honor to do it with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that our, our heartbeat, our response, our confession would align with that of the apostles this morning, that we must obey God rather than men. Lord, we want to obey your word. You've given us your spirit that you promise will cause us to walk in your statutes. Thank you. We know the strength to follow your commands doesn't come from us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And Lord, in a culture that is so adverse and resistant, it's like we want to avoid suffering at all cost. Even if it means doing stuff that's even more destructive to our bodies. Harmful drugs and alcohol and addictions. We want to avoid pain. Father, I pray that you would help us to be wise. We don't want to suffer for doing stupid stuff. <laughs> we don't want to suffer for being sinful and foolish. But we do pray that as you give us opportunities to experience whatever varying degrees of persecution we might feel in this life, that when that happens, we would consider it We would rejoice in it, that we are counted as worthy to share in your suffering. That as we suffer because of or on behalf of Jesus, we're following in your footsteps. Lord, we want to be like you. And we, we know and trust that while so much in our society and our movies and our stories shows the glorification and the elevation of self, and the victory of our own merit and effort, that you modeled for us an upside-down kind of kingdom where greatness is not defined as being served, but as serving. Authority is not used for giving people orders. It's used to serve. We look at you, the king of kings, that you didn't count equality with God, something you grasped. You became a human. You took on flesh. You entered the world as a baby. You subjugated yourself, you, you submitted yourself to a life of service. You washed the feet of your disciples. And you left an example for us, Father, that greatness is not found in puffing ourselves up, but in humbling ourselves and elevating the greatness of you, King Jesus. We, I forget this all the time. Father, forgive me for, I'm so prone to wander. I'm prone to, 
who want to be served. Defining greatness by followers and influence and fame. Lord, help me and help our church become greater servants. Lord, help us to have a kind of joy that's not marked and not characterized and not produced simply by our good circumstances, but our relationship, our union with you, Jesus. We pray that you would deliver us from the schemes of the enemy, from evil. We admit and acknowledge that, that spiritual warfare and attacks are real. And you seek to discourage us. You seek to divide us. You seek to distract us. You seek to cause us to doubt your goodness as we suffer. You seek to infuse lies into our thinking that, that tells us and leads us to believe that, that you're somehow angry at us and that's why we're suffering. Our, our, you, you're not a, a loving God because you haven't healed this suffering we might have. Lord, I thank you for this church and the encouragement that they give me and that we can be to each other. I pray that you'd help us to, to help each other focus on Jesus, Lord. We can be there for each other in our time of need. We can rejoice when there are things to rejoice in our life. We can weep with those who weep. Lord, pray that your gospel would be more functional and seen and visible in our church. We, we want to be a church not only that has a gospel Focus in our singing, in our preaching, but a gospel smell, feel, a culture where people really are welcomed and they feel they can be honest. They can feel they can be transparent about their struggles and their sins without fear of judgment and condemnation. I thank you for what you're doing in this church and ask that you would continue to bless us, Father. We know that you have called us to be a witness in this community, in this city in our families, in our neighborhoods. You've given us your spirit to empower us to be your witness, and you've given us this church to encourage each other as we follow Jesus on this mission. Would you be glorified? Would we be built up as we respond in praise and worship to you? We love you so much, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.